Amen. Praise the Lord. Remain standing for prayer. Now, we don't have any discipleship recognitions this service, right? We did, we did in the early service, and I've walked on them before, so, I'll, you know, I'll ask. But uh, praise the Lord, man. Thanks, Brandon, and praise team for reminding us of what the Lion of Jude is going to do. And uh, we get to look at a passage today that's kind of going to show us how he's going to do it. So go ahead and bump elbows with your neighbor. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, we thank you today for your mercies to us. God, we come before you not because we deserve anything that you've done for us or anything even you give us today. But Lord, we know we can count on Christ. We can count on his faithfulness. Uh, Lord, we can count on his, uh, uh, his righteousness on our behalf. And Lord, so I come to you today. I pray, Holy Spirit, be here. Speak to our hearts. Show us your word. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. Maybe seated in the Lord's presence. And if you have your Bible with you, be turning to the book of Daniel, chapter 9. We've made a commitment to kind of go through Daniel a chapter at a time. I like that because it keeps it, uh, you know, it keeps us from getting bogged down. And then also it helps us maybe remember, keep some things in our mind from previous chapters and alternating this with a study of grace that we're doing. So. Um, we're up to chapter 9 today. The other thing that really amazes me, it still amazes me after all these years of ministry and preaching and teaching, is how the Word of God is so sufficient and the practical nature of it. And I know that our tendency with prophecy is we just want to focus on that one thing. You know, what's going to happen in the future and stuff like that. And, and so we tend to take prophecy passages lift them out of their correct context, and then we don't end up getting everything out of even the events that it's talking about that we ought to get. And so this ninth chapter is so amazing, and I think it's my example for um, my proof for exactly what I said about the Bible being sufficient for all your needs. Because I know this, there's one thing that we all constantly fight, and every day of our life we are confronted, we are resisted, we are pulled back by stress, by tension and stress. I mean, we find it in the home and we find it in the workplace and in our professional lives it is there, in our personal lives it is there. And more energy and motivation is sucked out of us because of anxiety than probably any other factor in our society. And two things work together, I think, in tandem to aggravate stress I'll call them the two twin joy stealers of our lives. They are the enemies of worry and anxiety. And worry invites into your life an inordinate fear of the future. And anxiety doesn't read hypothetical future problems back into the present, but it does paralyze you right where you're at. Because anxiety incorrectly evaluates God's activity in your current circumstance. So Daniel had the antidote. And in chapter 9, he gives it to us. And before we can get to using the skeleton key, which unlocks all biblical prophecy on the second advent... Well, we need to see how the groundwork is laid in, in the first 19 verses of Daniel 9. You know, Jesus said, men ought always to pray and not to faint, Luke chapter 18, verse 1. And that is because that's the kind of heavenly father that we have. 
He is absolutely sovereign. He has a sovereign free will. We are absolutely unfettered in our free will, and our God is so sovereign. He wants us to pray and to keep praying in order to affect what he's going to do. And so this transcendent, omnipotent God wants to have a relationship with you, and that is through the Word of God and through prayer. So he even offers to hear and to be influenced in time by what you pray. And I know Paul prayed three times and stopped, because, but that was because God gave him a specific word about grace and the grace he was giving for that particular thorn that he had. But Jesus said, you know, you need to be, uh, you ne- you need to be incessant in your praying unless I give you a word that says stop, don't stop. Because here we are in Daniel 9, verse 1 says, in the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, of the seed of the Medes, so Medo-Persian Empire, after Babylon, which was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans. Now, it's been 10 years since Daniel's vision in the last chapter. In Daniel chapter 8, he was at the last year of Belshazzar, king of the Babylonians. Now now he is in the first year of Darius, the Medo-Persian Empire that took over. And chronologically, in terms of the book, we're back in chapter 6, and Daniel's now 90 years old, and I want you to notice first off how God never gives visions and dreams when he can teach you to respond to him through his word. And this is how practical prophecy really is for us today, because there are nine things in this passage that define biblical prayer for any believer. Nine things right here. Nine characteristics, biblical prayer. First off, prayer, number one, is my response to God's word. Verse two, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood by books, by the books of the Bible, as we're going to see by by the prophecy of Jeremiah and by the books of Moses uh, in addition. He says, I understood by books the number of the years whereof the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah the prophet that he would accomplish 70 years in the desolations of Jerusalem. So Daniel gains understanding reading the scriptures that he had. It doesn't matter how many copies of copies, how far down the line, what, scri- what, somebody, what some secular scholar could say the scribes did to it. He knows the Holy Spirit is watching over God's word to preserve it for him. And so he looks at and he says, I know I've got God's word in these books. And Jeremiah has predicted Judah's exile. And he predicted it the very year, Daniel says, that me and my friends were taken captive in, in 605 B.C. But now as Daniel reads that prophecy of Jeremiah, what was prophetic at that time and now being fulfilled, he discovers a startling prediction about when this time of judgment is going to end. Jeremiah says the captivity will end after 70 years. Jeremiah 29, verses 10 and 11. But now when Daniel reads Jeremiah, he is moved by the reference to prayer being used in the process of bringing about that promise. That is how sovereign our God is. He wants to have a relationship with you. He responds to you. 
through his word and through your prayer. So in other words, your unfettered free will is able to affect God's sovereign free will in what he's going to do. I mean, and that's uncalvinistic and an unfatalistic declaration is the whole premise of prayer. This is exactly why Jesus says you ought always to pray and not to faint. Now watch on your handout. Look at Jeremiah 29. Let's, go, let's take it back to the actual first reference, uh, to the original source. Uh, Jeremiah 29, verse 12. Then shall ye call upon me, and ye shall go and pray unto me, and I will hearken unto you. And ye shall seek me and find me when ye shall search for me with all your heart. And I will be found of you, saith the Lord, and I will turn away your captivity, and I will gather you from all the nations, from all the places whither I've driven you, saith the Lord, and I will bring you again into the place whence I caused you to be carried away captive. So I'm going to bring you back to the place you were carried away captive from. And he says, I'm going to do it after I've heard you pray. So prayer is listening to God in his word and then responding out of your life. So second, second, this number two, prayer is my concentration on God's attention. What he's got his attention on. Verse three, and I set my face unto the Lord. I mean, you can't, you just can't get distracted. You can't, you can't listen to the proclamation that's calling your stadium Burrowhead and be distracted. I mean, you just can't listen to the mayor who says that, you know, Burroughs is Mahomes' daddy. You can't, you can't go there. On they gotta play us day. Prayer has my undivided attention and the attention's in the right place. Daniel's attention's on God. And third, this number three, prayer is my demonstration of humility. Verse three says, to seek by prayer and supplications with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. Now, fasting demonstrates humility in your appetite. Hello, somebody. Sackcloth demonstrates humility in your appearance. Putting ashes on your head demonstrates humility in your actions. And our culture... We live in an age of personal convenience. We live in an age of indulgence. And so prayer is not always convenient in an age of personal convenience. But prayer denies self in that age of indulgence. In other words, when you get so agitated, when there's so much worry, when there's so much anxiety, when you are so stressed out, that normally you would head for the fridge, you head for prayer. That's how that works. N number four, prayer is my recognition of God's might, majesty, and mercy. Verse four. And I prayed unto the Lord my God and made my confession and said, O Lord, the, the great and dreadful God, keep keeping the covenant and mercy to them that love him. And to them that keep his commandments, I mean, you see the Trinity all the way through the Bible, but even here in this verse, I prayed unto the Lord, all capitals, that's Jehovah, and, uh, and said, O Lord, capital L, small O-R-D, that's Adonai. And whenever you start praying to God for who he is, Satan will assail you, Satan will accuse you, Satan will confuse you, Satan tries to distract you. But these are qualities that give you the ground to stand on before the Lord. And Paul says in Ephesians 6, all you got to do to win is stand. 
you got to stand. Now, here's the ground that you can stand on to leverage your prayer to God. What is it? Well, number five, it is your confession of sin. Notice how central biblical authority is. In other words, having Scripture in the moment, having Scripture available to you to read. Notice how important that was for Daniel. He had, he appealed to, he relied on, verse 5, precepts and judgments. Verse 6, the speaking of the prophets, which had been written down in the books he was reading. Verses 10 and 11, the voice of the Lord. Verse 5 says, We have sinned and have committed iniquity and have done wickedly and have rebelled, even by departing from thy precepts and from thy judgments. Now, what is it that constitutes complete confession? Let me give you several things. First, letter A, identify your sin. Daniel uses four separate words to describe his sin. They are not synonyms. Each one brings out a different aspect. So in verse 5, he says, we have sinned. And that's a word that means to miss the mark. I mean, you didn't, I mean, we all miss the mark. Um, We didn't necessarily intend it. You know, it's just the way life is. The mark was missed. Well, okay, then he says, and have committed iniquity. Well, that's more than missing the mark. That's moving the mark. So that means you have perverted and distorted the truth. So what you did, you were trying to hit the mark. You hit off the mark. So you move the mark over to where you hit. Third, he says, and have have done wickedly. That's a passion for evil. So it was not unintentional, it was deliberate, it was motivated, it was premeditated. And last, he says, and have rebelled. You rejected God's authority. So whenever, whenever, whenever in our society, even those in evangelicaldom and Baptisthood, whenever they distort the truth, they then lose God's control. They defy, you defy God's control if you distort his truth. Now listen to the depth of Daniel's confession here because it involves their prior denial of biblical authority. Not listening to God's words, not hearing the voice of the Lord, not paying attention to the prophets. In other words, they denied the God authority of scripture itself. Verse 6, neither have we hearkened unto thy servants the prophets, which spake in thy name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. So Daniel identifies his sin, but then second letter B, is what full confession means. He acknowledges his shame. Verse 7, O Lord, righteousness belongeth unto thee, but unto us confusion of faces as, as at this day. To the men of Judah and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and unto all Israel that are near and that are far off through all the countries, whither thou hast driven them because of their trespass, that they've trespassed against thee. O Lord, to us belongeth confusion of face, to our kings, to our princes, and to our fathers, because we have sinned against thee. See, when you really pray, you don't blame the circumstances. You don't blame somebody else. You don't make yourself the victim. You do not say, yeah, but. You do not say, well, okay, I was bad, but they were badder. I mean, I was bad, but they were bad, bad. 
So after we identify our sin, we acknowledge our shame. We embrace it. And third letter C, we appeal to God's mercy. Because it is a false and a shallow appeal to mercy if you have not embraced your shame. Verse 9, to the Lord our God belong, oh, I, I mean, I love the plurals, belong mercies and forgivenesses, though we have rebelled against him. So when one mercy runs out, whoop, there's another one. When one forgiveness runs out, whoop, there's another one. But in the final analysis, complete confession, this is letter D, <coughs> is going to affirm God's judgment. Look how he does this, in, uh, starting in verse 10. Neither have we obeyed the voice of the Lord our God to walk in his laws, which he set before us by his servants, the prophets. Yea, all Israel have transgressed thy law, even by departing, that they might not obey thy voice. Therefore, the curse is poured upon us. And the oath that is written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, because we sinned against him. So Daniel is reading books, not just the book of Jeremiah, but also the books of Moses. And he hath confirmed his words, which he spake against us. So Moses said he would do this. You know what? God was righteous. He did exactly what he said he was going to do. And against our judges that judged us by bringing up, uh, upon us a great evil. For unto the whole, under the whole heaven hath not been done as hath been done upon Jerusalem. As it is written in the law of Moses, all this evil has come upon us. Yet made we not our prayer before the Lord our God that we might turn from our iniquities. You know, so maybe it starts there. Maybe it starts with all of this type of acknowledgement, A, B, C, and D. That is how you turn from your iniquity and understand God's truth. Therefore, hath the Lord watched upon this evil. He's, I mean, he saw it coming. He saw the Babylonians way back. He knew exactly what was going to happen. And he brought it upon us, for the Lord our God is righteous in all his works, which he doeth, for we obeyed not his voice. This is our first point for study. If God's right, then the way he does things is all right. The way he judged you is all right. What he let happen is all right. Why do we want to argue with God? I mean, so many times in counseling, people say to me, well, Alan, okay, you were right, but I didn't like the way you did it. I didn't like the way you said it. Uh, I, didn't, I didn't like that look on your face. Uh, I didn't like who you told about it. Okay, you know what? You can't have judgment, uh, justice without judgment. And judgment's always going to feel judgy. And I know we say no justice, no peace, but the biblical, the biblical formula is no righteousness, no peace. So, number six, my appeal is to God to work. That's what prayer is, verse 15. And now, O Lord, our God, I can't get myself out of this. I, can't, I certainly can't get my nation out of this. Thou hast brought thy people forth out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and hast gotten thee renowned as at this day. They were still talking about it, even in Medo-Persia. And he says, we have sinned, we have done wickedly. And then there are two specific petitions there's a negative one first, and then there's a positive one. The negative one, remove your wrath, verse 16. The positive one, grant us forgiveness, verse 17. Look at verse 16. O Lord, according to all thy righteousness, I beseech thee. Let thine anger and thy fury be turned away from thy city, Jerusalem. 
There's the capital, thy holy mountain. There's the kingdom. Because for our sins and for the iniquity of our fathers, Jerusalem and thy people are become a reproach to all that are about us. And and this is why scripture is so important when it comes to prayer. Because the foundational thing is that prayer is a response to God's word. It is God's, when I know we say prayer changes things, but prayer changes things as you activate the word of God to do the work. The word of God does the work. Prayer is your acknowledgement of what God says about what has been done and what has to be done. And in this case, God's word contains God's work in human history. We're going to see that come up as he gets to the prophecy. And so your, well, the point is your personal situation is not isolated from all of that. Your personal life is not isolated from what we're going to see as we get to the end of this chapter. Number seven, prayer is my acceptance of God's reasons for answering me. Verse 17, now therefore, O our God, hear the prayer of thy servant and his supplications. And some people think that God answers prayer because we bug him enough. And somehow Jesus was saying, well, you know, if you keep bugging him, just keep bugging God and eventually you'll get it. And that's not what it's about at all. It's not not about us bugging God. It's about us bugging us. We need to bug us because God's easy. And according to Daniel, there are three significant reasons that God answers prayer. First letter A, for his own glory. Verse 17, and cause thy face to shine upon my sanctuary that is desolate for the Lord's sake. Do it for your glory. Not, we're not worth it. You are. Second, because of his great mercy. Verse 18, O oh my God, incline thine ear and hear, open thine eyes and behold our desolations and the city which is called by thy name. For we do not present our supplications before thee for our righteousnesses, but for thy great mercies. I mean, Daniel bases, all, all prayer is a plea. He bases his whole plea on God's righteousness, verse 16, not his own and not his nation's, verse 18. So the reason God answers prayer, this is letter C, is for his own reputation. And here we got the Trinity again in verse 19. Oh, Lord, hear, there's one's for the Father. Oh, oh Lord, forgive, there's one's for the Son. Oh, Lord, hearken and do, there's one for the Spirit. Defer not for thine own sake, O my God, for thy city and thy people are called by thy name. You know, I just, you know, I I like taking this up one chapter at a time and it's a challenge for me to think through it in such a way we can cover the whole thing at once. And and I do have to cut across the field a little bit, but the eighth prayer, and this this number eight is, prayer is my leaving the answer to God. Verse 20, and whilst I was speaking and praying and confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and presenting my supplication before the Lord my God for the holy mountain of my God. Now, if you look at that word presenting in verse 20, in other places, the James gang translated it, cast down, let to fall, lay down. In other words, prayer is you releasing your request to God once you express it. When you're tempted to take it back up again, you pray again and you release it again. And that is the only way that you leave the answer up to him instead of you trying to work it out in the flesh. And if you try to work it out in, your fle- in the flesh, 
You are idolizing yourself as God. You've got to give it up and give it over to him. So the very act of praying ought to be saying, Lord, I give this to you. Lord, I leave this to your will because I want you to control this situation, not me. He talks about the holy mountain. That's God's kingdom. And and that comes first. God, you render judgment, not me. So in the final analysis, this number nine, prayer is me getting results because God either intervenes or gives me insight. Verse 21, and whilst I was speaking in prayer, even the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the beginning, which means 10 years ago, in the last chapter, Daniel chapter 8, Gabriel showed up. And, and angels in the Bible always appear as men. The only, the only winged angels are seraphim and cherubim, and uh, uh, they're not the ones who come down and appear to us. So the man Gabriel, yet being caused to fly swiftly, so I may not have wings, but they can kind of act like Superman, touched me about the time of the evening oblation, the time that had the temple been standing, they would have been doing the evening sacrifice. So either God intervenes, or God gives you insight, or some combination of both. When you pray and God does not intervene, he is giving you insight. Lord, teach us to pray like Daniel. I mean, it's an amazing answer. Gabriel, the Bible messenger of God to the nation of Israel, is dispatched from heaven with a time block of truth. It is a prophetic pattern. It is a template that becomes the skeleton key for unlocking all the passages on end-time prophecy. In verse 21, he touches Daniel. In verse 22, he teaches him. Watch, verse 22, and he informed me and talked with me. And said, oh, Daniel, I am now come forth to give thee skill and understanding. That's why we are a disciple-making church. I mean, knowledge you get from the Bible. You get knowledge from the Bible just reading it. But in order to really understand and apply and grasp the truth of spiritual things, in order to really have it applied with understanding, well, you need a discipler to show you so you can see how exactly how it's done. So that's our second point for study. Through prophecy, God gives you an accurate perspective on the significance of our ministry together. So so as I take you now into the deeper things of the prophetic portion of this chapter, I'm not talking about something for somebody else in the future. I am talking about your work this year with us. Therefore, verse 23, at the beginning of thy supplications, the commandment came forth, and I am come to show thee, for thou art greatly beloved. Therefore, understand the matter and consider the vision. Ten years on, Gabriel returns to Daniel to give him further revelation on the vision he had seen in chapter 8. But the vision he had seen in chapter 8 was about Gentile nations. This vision is not that. So Daniel had Gabriel. Today we have the Holy Ghost. So when you opened your Bible this morning, or when you uh, brought it up on your mobile device, the Holy Spirit saw that. He rolled up his sleeves, and he started to go to work inside your mind and inside your heart. 
in order to give you God's pattern today for end-time prophecy. So let's make sure we get this before we go. Number one, God marks off a specific period of time. Verse 24 says, 70 weeks are determined. Number two, in total, that time is going to last 70 weeks. Now, the word week is generic. It is any unit of time that's divided into seven segments. So, you know, a ruler is divided into 12 segments. Uh, Gentiles that we are, number 10 is important to us. So we count time in terms of decades. But Daniel and the Jews thought of time in terms of sevens, not in terms of tens. And that means the word weeks needs a context in order to mean anything. So you walk into Lamar's Donuts this morning and you ask for a dozen. I'm not going to say a dozen what. They may say a dozen which. I'm not going to say a dozen what because context is king and, and you're in a donut shop. Well, what is the context of weeks for these 70 weeks? Look back up at verse 2. It's right here in the chapter. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood by books the number of the Years whereof the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah the prophet that he would accomplish 70 years in the desolations of Jerusalem. Daniel knows his people have not been praying yet. And yet Daniel wants that 70 year time clock of the captivity to start with his captivity, 606 BC, not with the final fall of Jerusalem, 586 BC. And he is concerned that 70 years of his captivity are almost over, and Israel is still not walking with God. So in Daniel's head are years. So Daniel would understand the word week to mean, a, to mean seven years, to mean a week of years, to mean 77s of years, like we'd say a month of Sundays. Confirmation of that is Genesis 29, verses 20 and 27. Number three, the total block of time decreed adds up to 490. Uh, uh, So those 70 weeks that he's talking about are the last of several 490-year blocks where God deals with his people, the Jews, starting with Abraham, the first Jew, the first Hebrew. So Abraham to the Exodus, 490 years. Exodus to the temple, 490 years. Temple to the order to rebuild Jerusalem, 490 years. 490 years left in Daniel chapter 9. Number four, this time concerns the Jews and Jerusalem, not the church, not Christians. Verse 24, upon thy people and upon thy holy city which is a significant shift in focus in Daniel's prophecies because all the previous visions related to Gentile nations, even chapter 8. So Daniel knows the Gentiles, and he certainly knows the Jews. The church hasn't been revealed yet. It's still a mystery, so it doesn't fit into this equation. But God is now returning to the subject of his own kingdom. So number five, six objectives are accomplished in that block of time. God sets a specific period in which he finishes his final purpose with his people Israel. Verse 24, these 70 weeks are determined upon thy people and thy holy city. Two, 
finish the transgression, make an end to sins, make reconciliation for iniquity, bring in everlasting righteousness, seal the vision and prophecy, and anoint the most holy. Okay, that hadn't happened. So what are we waiting for? Oh, we've got one last 70th week to go because number six, God has also divided that time into three segments, seven plus 62 plus plus one. Verse 25, know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem unto Messiah the Prince shall be seven weeks plus three score and two weeks. That's a breakdown of the last days. So, so three periods are in this unit of time that God has carved out of human history. In verse 25, the first two units go together and they prophesy the rebuilding of Jerusalem after seven weeks and the coming of its king after a you know, further, further 62 weeks. So verse 25, the streets shall be built again and the wall even in troublous times. So a time clock starts whenever a decree is issued to rebuild Jerusalem. That decree is recorded in the word of God itself, Nehemiah 2 verses 1 to 8. The king's name, or at least his title, is uh, Artaxerxes. So this 490-year period starts April 445 B.C. For seven weeks, for 49 years, there is a restoring and a rebuilding of Jerusalem. And then Malachi, the last Hebrew prophet, stops writing after 49 years. So his, his prophecy is 396 B.C. No more. The Old Testament is complete after that. Curtain falls. But after those seven weeks, the next 62 weeks of years is another 434 years. So there's a total of 483 years from the decree until the Messiah shows up and he shows up on Palm Sunday and he rides the darkie into Jerusalem and, and a kingdom requires a capital. It requires a king, but it also requires subjects. So verse 26, after three score and two weeks shall Messiah be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the prince that shall come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary and the end thereof shall be with a flood. And unto the end of the war, desolations are determined. All right, Jesus came as Christ and King, but he was crucified, not accepted. He was crucified not because he was a sinner, but for your sins. Then there's a multivalent aspect to this. There's two simultaneous applications. The prince that would come was the Roman general Titus. And they did come in like a flood, and they destroyed Jerusalem in A.D. 70, and he leveled it, but he did not do everything listed in this verse. That means there's a double fulfillment. Titus was a partial fulfillment, but he was just a picture of the Antichrist to come. So, we wait for the one whom verse 26 calls the prince that shall come. That's one of the 12 names of the Antichrist in the Bible. He gives us the ultimate fulfillment. So let's, let's rush on to the conclusion. If the 70th week follows consecutively after those first 69. Then the kingdom would have come seven years after the death of the Messiah. Seven years after the crucifixion. And it would have and it could have. That's why the book of Acts is a transitional book. 
Because God was keeping all his options open as sovereign God based upon the unfettered free will of the Jews. And had those Jews in those seven years accepted the signs and miracles, even of the apostles, Jesus would have come back. That would have been that seven years done. But you know what? Instead of accepting that, they crucified Stephen. So now what happens? Well, what happens is God calls time out and almost 2,000 years are hidden between verse 26 and verse 27. So the age in which we now live, the church age, where God is dealing with us in grace, is a parenthesis of time. Daniel did not see. Daniel was not privy to that. But what is important for us to note is that God is not going to forget to keep his promises to Israel. He's not going to fail to accomplish all six objectives, bringing in the capital, bringing in the king, and bringing subjects into the kingdom. Credits have not rolled yet. So how is this all going to take place? Well, that's number seven. There are two periods of time within that last week of seven years. Verse 27, and he, that prince who shall come, the Antichrist, will confirm the covenant with many for one week. And in the midst of the week, he shall cause the sacrifice and the oblation to cease. And for the overspreading of abominations, he shall make it desolate, even until the consummation. And that determined shall be poured upon the desolate. Okay, now get out your zoom lens. Let's look at this final week before we finish. This is why we are not, we are not waiting to see the Antichrist show up. Because yes, that last week does have two halves, but it's not split. Those two halves are not split. It's all one continuous week. That is why the rapture in your New Testament is always spoken of as imminent or any moment. There are no signs for Jesus coming for us. The words, and he, refers to the prince that shall come, the Antichrist. And he will do three things in those last seven years. And this really gives us the career of the Antichrist. First letter A, he'll make a peace treaty with the Jews, with the many, with those who are in control, with the rulers of the nation, and through some chain of miracles, we know from Revelation and other places, he's going to become the leading figure in the world, and they will believe his lies. Second letter B, in the middle of that seven-year accord, after he's given permission for the temple to be built and sacrifices started, he will end those sacrifices and offerings. I mean, he'll say, let's, let's trade land for peace. And just to keep it honest, let's make it a seven-year transition. And in exchange for that, I will arrange for you to reestablish sacrificial worship on the temple mount. So he's, in essence, making a covenant to call them back to the covenant of Moses. When he breaks that covenant in the middle, then let her see, he will set up an image so abominable to God that it causes the temple to be desolate. It will be an idol, which is an image of himself set up for worship, Revelation 13 to 16. So I know you've heard of the Terminator. This guy's the desolator. 
And then we'll come to the time that the Bible calls the time of Jacob's trouble, also known as the Great Tribulation, the last half of that week. So for 42 months, the Antichrist rules and runs wild. Revelation 13, 5. So I know this is going deep, but you got to get this before you go, because just so amazing. Satan has a second coming, just like Jesus has his. John 17, 12, 2 Thessalonians 2, 3. The devil has his incarnation in the Antichrist, just like God has in his incarnation in Jesus Christ. John 13, 27, Revelation 13. Satan has his mystery of iniquity, just like God has his mystery of godliness. 2 Thessalonians 2, 7. 1 Timothy 3.16. The mystery of godliness is how Jesus was Jehovah God with skin on. I mean, in the Old Testament, he appears as the angel of the Lord, but then he, got, then he was born to Mary. He's got skin on now. And that mystery solves all the cult confusion. The Jehovah's Witnesses, the Mormons, the Muslims. But the mystery of iniquity is that the Antichrist is Satan with skin on. You don't want to be around when that happens, so get saved today. And if you'll pray, you can trust Jesus for everlasting life. You can do that this morning. He'll give you a new birth. He'll infuse you with his Holy Spirit. He will make you his child. And before the Antichrist ever signs that peace deal, Jesus will rescue his bride in an operation that Paul calls being caught up, and so we call it the rapture. 1 Thessalonians 4.17. And you know what? The Antichrist can explain that however he wants. As a matter of fact, at this very moment, the Pentagon is struggling to explain 170 UFO sightings just last year. Well, maybe he'll say they got us. Or maybe a balloon from China. I don't know. (laughs) You know, there's 7,474 promises in the Bible. Have you claimed any of them? Have you ever claimed any of them? I mean, I know many of you have, but maybe some of you, even all those promises are still inside the print on the page, even the promise today of a present eternal salvation. Maybe you were raised in a religious home. Maybe you were baptized and catechized. Maybe you were confirmed. Maybe you're a member of a church. Maybe you think you're safe because of all of that. Maybe you reason like, all of us good new Romans do. Well, you know, I'm, I'm, better, I'm, better, I'm better than some, uh, as good as some and better than many. God ought to be privileged to have me in his heaven. Or, you know, the thing that always uh, amazes me is the one thing we dread the most is the, the exact thing that all alternate com- comparative religions give to you. In other words... None of us want to go out of existence. And that's the only thing Buddhism and Hinduism offer you. Oh, no heaven, no hell, no God, no sin. Just poof. And and eventually you're absorbed into the universe. And that's all of you. You know, God promises you everlasting life with him. He promises you life after death. If you're scared of death, he promises He promises you life. You need to trust Jesus today for everlasting life and do it this morning and then plug into ministry through this church and let us take you and link you up with someone who can disciple you 
It's not a never-ending process. It's 16 basic fundamental concepts of the Christian walk. It's just Bible. Someone taking you through the Bible one-on-one. And that way you can gain insight and understanding through the Word of God. Every head bowed, every eye closed. You know, every Sunday I give you a handout and, you know, let you fill it in and take it with you. And you've got stuff you can go back to and plenty of other verses you can read and look at and, and digest. But the one thing I wish you'd take away with you this morning is the understanding that God has a larger plan. God has a plan for your soul for eternity. God has a purpose for your soul for eternity. But you've got to get in on it today. He's sovereign, but he's not so sovereign that he has to violate your free will to maintain his sovereignty. So he doesn't do it. You've got to get in on it today. Things are too close. There is, there is so much that is already in place. And we need you with us now to be pulling others in. Get ready today so that you'll be ready. And all you have to do is pray, just like we saw Daniel. I mean, you've heard the word. I know the Holy Spirit has been answering to the word this morning to start a spark, to ring a bell. He's, he's willing to bring you new life, and all you got to do is pray. Just pray and say, God, save me for Jesus' sake. I mean, I see it today. I see it's not my righteousnesses that are going to be worth anything. I've got to trust in the righteousness that you provide through your son, that you provide for the Messiah who was cut off, but not for his own sins, for mine. So I trust Jesus today for what he promises me, everlasting life. And you know what? I know if I could see your phone, if I could see your phone, I know that you are not shy about registering for websites or creating your own identity on an app. So do not neglect, as we sing and the praise team sends us out singing, do not neglect coming forward to let us know you got saved so I can give you a copy of my book, Next Steps for New Believers. Or to let us know you want to get baptized next Sunday, Super Bowl Sunday. It'll be our Super Sunday because we're doing baptisms. Or let us know you want to become a member of this church or let us know up here out in the lobby that you want to get discipled. Go ahead and stand and and let's get ready for the praise team to send us out singing. If you have a need for prayer, you want somebody to pray with you or pray for you, just come here to the front to the altar workers that we have here and they'll take care of you. Next Sunday is our series on grace, and I want to talk about how you can cash in on God's grace. 